0: So up in our Bibles, um, Luke 19, when Paul was reading for us a little earlier this morning, really one of the most remarkable studies in the Bible is the one that we're doing this morning. And Paul already read our text. I'm going to give you a little bit of the background before we dive into it this morning. One of the things that we've been learning as we've been making our way through the book of Isaiah, this back-and-forth tit-for-tat thing that the Lord very sarcastically chides, especially the northern ten tribes, for the sheer craziness of making a wooden object and then covering it with something and using part of it to um, warm themselves with the fire and another part of that same piece of wood to cook their meal And then make an idol out of it and and worship it. And um, he challenges them, just how foolish that is. And then he would liken it and compare it to himself. In Isaiah 41, verse 21, he says, present your case. People that do such things. Says the Lord, bring forth your strong reason. Says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us things what will happen. And let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them, and know the latter end of them, or declare things that are yet to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter. In other words, he's saying, I'm a true and living God, because I can do something nobody else can do. And it is tell you something before it happens, and then it happens. Jesus would say the same thing to his disciples, I've told you these things ahead of time so that when they happen, then you will believe that I am he, that I'm the one that was, was sent. The Lord in the scriptures is very, very detailed when it comes to the study of numbers. There's a whole field of research called the Gabatria that goes along with it. Uh, competent men like A.W. Bullinger's written books on biblical numerology. And we're going to deal with numbers this morning. Even the coming of, it says in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. But there was that time that was preordained before the foundations of the world that it would happen at a certain time that he would establish. It is Palm Sunday. That means Jesus has one week to live. On Friday or Thursday, that's debatable, he'll be crucified As foretold in Isaiah 53, we'll be there in a couple of weeks. And then one week from today, we'll be celebrating Resurrection Sunday. This morning, what I'd like to do is look at three prophecies that were fulfilled on this day, Palm Sunday. There are many, many more, but three that happened on this particular one. The first one that I would like to look at Let's go back to Luke 19, picking it up in verse 28 through 36. This is a prophecy. We'll go back to Zechariah in just a little bit. But here was the first prophecy that's going to be fulfilled on this particular day, verse 28. Now, when he had said this, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. And It came to pass when he came near to Bethage in Bethany at the mountain that's called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, and he told them, go into the village opposite you, and where as you enter, you're going to find a colt or a donkey tied on which no one has ever sat. I want you to loose him, and I want you to bring him here. And he says, by the way, guys, if anybody asks you why are you taking my donkey, thus you will say to him, because the Lord has need of him. And so those who were sent departed and found it just as it was said to them. But as they were untying the colt, the owner said to him, what are you guys doing, loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord had need of him. End of discussion. Then they brought him to Jesus. They threw down their garments on, on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. Now just stop, this is a, this is a miracle by itself. Jim Baldway's over there. One of Jim's hobbies is raising quarter horses. Uh, from the time they're born. But uh, Jim knows that before he put a saddle on him, that, that horse has to be broken. And uh, you just don't hop on. That is not natural. So, what's happening here is the Lord has calmed this or spoken to this uh, animal, and there's this piece that has no problem being ridden for the very first time. So, that by itself is, is a miracle. And then they went and they spread their clothes on the road, also palms, and that's where we get Palm Sunday. Then as he went down near the descent, nope, I don't want to read that far. I want to stop right there. And I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter 9, which is close to the end of the Old Testament. One of the points we've been making as we teach, and that's the other thing that um, maybe you're visiting this morning, Uh, that we emphasize uh, at Calvary. There is a place for preaching, but primarily what we believe is that there should be the, the teaching of the word rather than the preaching. Preaching primarily is for the lost, and the majority of you here have already accepted Christ. So we believe that one of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives is a gift of teaching. And then it says, for the equipping of the saints so that they can do, or you can do, the work of ministry. And gang, if you can wrap your head around this study this morning, it's going to give you ammunition like you wouldn't believe for people who say they're atheists or agnostic, who are doubters, who don't believe this book is the word of God. And you can square off with them and say, how about if I prove to you it is? Will you accept my challenge? And uh, before we're through, we're through, we'll see that. So here in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, is a prophecy. And it says in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here's the prophecy. It is now the first of three that we're gonna look at this morning that has literally been fulfilled. One of the things we've, as we go through Isaiah that I've been pointing out, is in one verse, and this happened again on Wednesday. Or no, it happened in men's prayer yesterday. Where we're in Hosea, there's a, a prophecy that's fulfilled in Matthew two, verse 15 from when we we're reading in Isaiah, and it just pops out of nowhere. Well, here in verse 9, you have the first coming of the Lord. It's lowly, he's humble, he's on a donkey. Uh, but if you go to verse 10, there's a gap of some 2,000 years. And it's, all, it's the next verse. And it's talking about his kingdom. He says, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horses from Jerusalem. The battle bowl shall be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations, plural, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Well, that certainly didn't happen the first time he came. Matter of fact, he said, my kingdom isn't of this world. So here in verse nine, you have him coming humbly, but not in verse 10, no. Bible says he's got bloodstained garments and on his robe was written Lord of Lord and kings of kings and he's on a white stallion and he's coming to Uh, make war, and establish his kingdom. And here we have just between verse 9 and 10, and this is consistent uh, throughout the Old Testament. All right, let's go back to Luke. That's the first one. The second prophecy fulfilled on that first Palm Sunday is verses 38 through 40. So let's pick it up in verse 38. When we go to Jerusalem, Of course, it's not the original. I'm sure we don't know exactly where it was. But we start at the top of the hill, and we walk down the Mount of Olives. And we have a nice little place that we pay a couple shekels for, and and we have privacy, and and we have a Bible study in this place, and we're looking at the, the Eastern Gate. What a place to have a Bible study with people looking at the Eastern Gate while we're going through these scriptures. In verse 38, as Jesus is on the donkey, while he's riding, the people break out and they begin to quote Psalm 118. And they said, verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, what happens here is the religious leaders are all too well aware. They know the scriptures well. They know that the psalm that is being quoted, Psalm 118, pertains and applies to and can only be said about the Messiah. So they are offended in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called out to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now the reason for the rebuke is they say, These guys actually think that you're the Messiah. So tell them to button it up because you're not as far as they're concerned. Now, I want you to hold this. This is a rebuke. And he's asking Jesus to rebuke them. Um, And it's going to be interesting because the Lord's going to use Psalm 118 to turn the tables on them, the very one they're quoting here before we're through with our study this morning. Psalm 118. Let's turn back there. We have different types of psalms some messianic, some prophetic. This is both. This is a prophetic messianic psalm. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 22 of Psalm 118, which says the stone, which is a reference to the Lord, which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. Now this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made, I have that underlined, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. And the people will be saying, when this is fulfilled, they'll say, Hosanna, or save now. I pray, O Lord, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want to draw special attention to verse 24, where it says, this is the day. This day is going to be different than any other day. It is a preordained day where the Lord would be fulfilling, not only just as Jesus would ride on a donkey on this day, so on this, on this day, Psalm 118 would be quoted, according to the scriptures, while Jesus is riding the donkey. Now, let's go back to Luke 19, and it's what Jesus says here next, Because it has to be this day. Instead of rebuking the disciples, that's what the Pharisees wanted him to do, we read in verse 40, now Jesus is talking back to the the Pharisees, but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these would keep silent, if these people don't say what they're saying right now, Hosanna, save now, Lord. uh, If they would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Somebody has to be quoting Psalm 118. And he's saying, look, if these people don't do it, then God will raise up the stones to do it. And I always like to say, don't you think it would have been great if they nobody said anything? We usually tell uh, our friends, if you want a, a cheap souvenir, when you're on this path going down Palm Sunday Road, just pick up a rock and say, here's one of the stones that didn't cry out <laughs> and could have. People had to do this. And that's why Jesus... Um, clearly says they have to. If they don't, creation's going to. But somebody on this day has to be quoting Psalm 118 because this is the day. To drive that point further home, probably to me the most incredible prophecy in the Bible is in Daniel uh, chapter 9, and it leads us to our third prophecy that is going to be fulfilled on Palm Sunday Jesus riding the donkey number 1 Psalm 118 being fulfilled on this day it had to be this day but even further pinpointing it down to this particular day in the book of Daniel chapter 9 let's turn there one of the points that I'd make just go to Daniel this morning Daniel 9 verse 1 this is how you get equipped. Daniel has now been in captivity since Daniel 1 for the last 70 years. As we've been reading about Hezekiah, when he was showing off his friends from Babylon, all the treasures, uh, Isaiah came to him and says, what'd you do? He says, well, I've been showing them around. They're happy that I'm not sick anymore. And, And he said, well, what'd you show them? I showed them everything all the treasures, all the gold. He says, okay, this is what's going to happen. In the future, they're going to come down and take it all. Matter of fact, even your sons, they're going to take the cream of the crop, they're going to make them eunuchs, and they're going to serve the king of Babylon. And when you go to Daniel chapter 1, that's exactly what happened. Uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, were tested for three years, and uh, they sat... And served. And it says there was none wiser or sharper or more intelligent than all the other people that came and stood before the king, like Daniel. Well, now it's been 70 years. Daniel was a student of scriptures and he knew. And uh, this is important. We have to be a student of scriptures. This is a good place for an amen. amen. You can do better. Come on, it's spring. (laughs) Do I have to pull out the birthday card to get a good amen? All right. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of this reign, I, Daniel, I understood By the books, the number, see, here's the numbers again. The number of the years specified by the word of the Lord, given through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Again, time frame. You're going to be here for 70 years. We'll be entering uh, Jeremiah. um, And uh, he did not have any good, uh, they call him a weeping prophet for a reason. He had no good news, except you guys are going into captivity. Get used to it. So as we get to, to um, Daniel 9, the first 19 verses is a prayer. And he's interrupted in this prayer as he's praying by none other than Gabriel. He wants to know in his prayer, Lord, we admit we've sinned against you. We've worshiped uh, foreign gods and you punished us and you, you, lo- you took, took us into captivity for these 70 years, but according to my watch, the time is up and it's time to go home. And he's, at that point, Gabriel shows up on the scene and really Daniel's question is a simple one, when are we going home? But instead of doing that, he gives to Daniel what God is going to do, and this is so important that verse 24 and 25, who this is directed to. And um, it is directed, we read here, 70 weeks are determined. The word 70 there is, uh, we use the word, if I say I'll see it a decade from now, how long is it going to be till you see me again? Ten years, so we understand that. Well, here when they say a week, it's a seven-year period of time. So 77s, or 490 years, are determined to who? Who is he going to deal with? Your people, we're not talking Gentiles, and the holy city. Two things, the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people It's what this prophecy is for. And he's going to accomplish six things. He's going to finish this transgression, make an end of sin, make reconciliation for iniquity. That's what Good Friday is all about. To bring in everlasting righteousness. That's not going to happen till the millennium to seal up vision and prophecies, and to anoint the most holy. There are six things that God's going to do in this 490-year period of time. At this time, I'm going to put a graphic up on the screen that I pulled off the internet as we get into verse 25. And it begins by saying in verse 25, the time frame when the... Messiah will show up. Let's read it. Verse 25, Know therefore, Daniel, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets will be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. You have to have a starting point. The starting point um, this is not Sir Robert Anderson's work. This is um, another person's, but uh, there's almo- they're almost identical. And what you have to have for a starting point is, um, would be the picture where you have um, Nehemiah going in before King Artaxerxes, and he's in the palace of Sushan. So he's a Jew. He's always happy, but he's not happy this day. And the king picks up on it. He reads his body language. And he says, what's the problem? I know there's a problem. I can, it's written all over your face. And he says, well, I just got word from Jerusalem. Nobody's doing anything. Temple's not being rebuilt. Everybody's bummed out. And he says, I, I know you're up to something. What do you want, Nehemiah? He says, okay. And I'm quoting now Nehemiah 2, verses 5 through 8. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to him, and the queen was sitting beside him, Well, how long are you going to be gone for, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, I'm going to need letters to be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they uh, might permit me to pass through until I get to Judah. I don't want anybody hindering my journey, and I want your letter, and that'll do it. And a, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertain to the temple, for the city wall and the house that I will occupy, and the king granted them to him according to the good hand of my God that was upon me. So, what we have is a beginning point, and that's that first picture. That's Nehemiah, the cupbearer, and he's making this request. And um, this edict uh, was nice on two or March. 14th or 15th, I think those couple of days between Sir Robert Anderson and this one might be off a day or two. But it's gonna be after the the first 69 weeks. In other words, when Jesus came the first time, 69 weeks was fulfilled until Messiah the Prince. There's gonna be a command. Now when you get that command, and that's Nehemiah chapter two, Um, 445 BC, then start the clock. Start counting. Because 173,880 days later, the Messiah is going to come. For the life of me, I can't get my Jewish friends to read this, just at face value. And I said, just read it at face value. But they allegorize it away, explain it away. Why? Because they have to. Because if they took it literally, They would have to be looking for somebody that would show up on Palm Sunday because that is the day that this comes to, to the very day. Now, let's go back to, and um, I'll put up another chart as you're making your way back to uh, Luke chapter 19. This is a chart of the 69 weeks. And... um, Here it gets into the um, astronomical new moons of Nisan on March 13th and um, the math that's involved um, bringing us to, um, and this is debate, some say it's the 6th, some say it's the 10th, but Palm Sunday, um, 32 AD, and this particular person tells us how many moons there were, new moons, during that 483-year period of time or 173,880 days. Now, let's look down at verse 41. This is one of two times where Jesus weeps. And um, I know why he wept here. He wept over Lazarus. I'm not sure why he wept over Lazarus. It could have been because of their lack of faith. It could have been because he really loved Lazarus and he had to see him you knowing, poor guy had to die twice. <laughs> Bad enough to die once uh, and then be resurrected and come back. I can imagine uh, dying and going to heaven and have to come back for a while. No thanks. But he begins to weep and he, because he knows What's about to happen? So he he says in verse 42, he said, Oh, if you had only known, even you especially in this, your day. He's talking about a specific day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And then he prophesies, because the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, They're going to surround you. They're going to close you in on every side. They'll level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another. And then he gives the reason. He says, because. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Well, the implications are all over the place. What's he implying? (laughs) You should have known. Daniel knew because he read the Bible. He read Jeremiah. He knew time was up. And they, the religious leaders, should have been teaching. They should have understood Daniel. And they should have had their eyes wide open. Oh, there were people who were students of Daniel. You know who we call them? We call them the Magi. Remember, there were three guys. Well, we don't know that they were three, but they were from Persia. And uh, Daniel had a title, and his title was Chief. Uh, Magi, or raghag which means head of the Magi. So they knew that there was going to be a star, and they knew the general time. How did they know? They were students of Daniel. And so here, same thing, Um, here's going to be the consequences. He foretells the fate, now, of Jerusalem. He says, because you didn't know the time, implying, of course, that they would have. Well, the obvious question is, here's another prophecy. Did it happen or not? Yeah, exactly 38 years later, in 70 AD, the Roman 10th Legion came in, surrounded Jerusalem. When you visit Jerusalem today, every year they go back, they keep um, excavating more and more. In the last 10 years, They've uncovered these stones uh, twice the size of the pulpit, squared, and uh, where they laid and they were pushed off the wall onto the streets below. And there's about 30 of them there that they've excavated in perfect condition from 70 A.D. And you can actually see the stones, not one being left on top of the other. And that literally was also fulfilled in 70 AD, just as the Lord reasoned. All right, there they are. Three prophecies. Zechariah 9, fulfilled. Jesus rode on a donkey. Um, Psalm 118, this is the day. Hosanna, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were saying that, and somebody was going to be saying that, or the rocks were. That was fulfilled. And then we have Jesus saying you should have known that this was your day and I think he's pointing them back to Daniel. Gang, what I've just given to you is three prophecies that happened on this particular day. But there are over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming. Um, For those of you that might find it helpful and you'd like to um, have, We Mary has a contender series and one of her pamphlets is, is called Prophecy 101. And um, she quotes a guy named Peter Stoner. And you can, you can pick this up uh, if you want to, but let me just quote um, uh, from Mary's article here. It says the number of prophecies in the scriptures about Jesus of Nazareth being the fulfillment of all that God has promised uh, in the Messiah is about 300, uh, those being made before he was even born. What is the mathematical possibility of just one man accidentally fulfilling or maybe even purposefully manipulating over 300 predictions written hundreds of years before his birth if it's, either accidental or manipulative, you have lost me already and there's no reason to be a Christian. And she says, hey, I'm not gullible. God gave us brains and he expects us to use them, but neither is true and truth is what we're in pursuit of here. then she quotes Stoner. Professor Peter Stoner, 1888 to 1980, he was chairman of the Department of Mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College. He was chairman of the science division of Westmont College from 1953 to 57. This man calculated the probability of one man fulfilling only a handful of the over 300 messianic prophecies. Then in 1944, he published his research in Science Speaks, Scientific proof of the accuracy of the prophecies and the Bible. Stoner concluded that the probability of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies was one chance in 10 to the 17th power. That is one followed by 17 zeros. That's a lot of zeros. And so Stoner then was asked about, well, what would it be for 48 of the 300 prophecies. And Stoner calculated that the odds at one chance in 10 to the 157th power. And we're not even at 50 yet. To illustrate Stoner, um, to drive the point home, he said if you take 10 to the 17 silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas, cover the whole state, two feet deep, and then he says, now mark one of those silver dollars and then stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state, blindfold the man, tell him that he can go as far as he wants as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say, this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Well, just the same chance that the prophecies would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man. Again, we're not talking eight. We're talking 300. And all you have to have is one of them that you can prove is wrong, and you can throw it all away. Problem is, you can't, because that's how accurate, when Jesus says not even a jot or a tittle can pass away until my word is fulfilled. You know, this is where I beg people to use common sense when we study this book. Another good place for an amen. amen. It's a good, just when the Lord says come, well, let's talk this through, let's reason it out. Either I am or I'm not. It really boils down to that. Either Jesus is who he claimed to be, the son of the living God, or he's the most lying lunatic that ever walked the planet. There's no in between. And so there's one more Prophecy that didn't happen on this day But I need you to turn back to Luke And I want you to go to chapter 20 at this time There was one more thing The Lord does two days later This would be Tuesday On Tuesday um, He turns the tables on the Pharisees Remember They, were, they got on Jesus for quoting Psalm 118 And he, they <laughs> They said rebuke your disciples now, the Lord is going to use Psalm 118, and he's going to use that very Psalm, Psalm 118, to turn the tables on these guys. And so let's go to chapter 20, pick it up in verse 9. Again, this would be Tuesday, a couple days afterwards. And verse 9 says, Then he began to tell the people this parable. He said, A certain man planted a vineyard. He leased it to vine dressers.'" And he went into a far country for a long time. Now, when the vintage time, or harvest time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of his own vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him up and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent another servant. They beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him and cast him out. So, up to this point, the parable is speaking of the Lord sending Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea. And they would bring the true word of the Lord to the people. But instead of receiving it, wait till we get to Jeremiah. You know, they threw him in a pit and, you know, closed him up. And uh, they listened to the false prophets and said, say, don't worry about it. Nobody's taking you to Babylon. But even though it wasn't a popular message, it was so unpopular, they beat the guys up. And then, verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I know. I'm going to send my own beloved son. Well, we know what the father's talking, and now we're talking about the coming of our Lord. And he says, probably they'll respect him when they see him. Oh, they should have for sure. He did things no other man could do. The lame walked, the blind see, the deaf could hear. Walked on water, fed the multitudes. Miracle after miracle, the average person heard him gladly. The average person would listen to him, especially the publicans and the sinners. They were drawn in. They said, no man ever spoke like this man, and he's got something to say." And say. And so there was one group that didn't want to hear him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, because they did that, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now, that's the father. And he said, he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyards to others. Now, as the Lord is telling this story, the Pharisees are starting to pick up on who he's talking about. And then they say, Certainly not. We're, we're heirs of Abraham, and uh, all the promises belong to us. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. And then the Lord looked at them and said, Well, then is written here, and he goes back and he quotes Psalm 118, turning the tables, pointing it right back at them, and he says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, Psalm 118, and then, uh, this is our last verse for this morning, uh, this is actually another prophecy. It didn't happen on Palm Sunday. But it's about them, and it's being fulfilled right there. And then he tells them in verse 18. And that is that the gospel of Jesus Christ that he brought leaves a person with one of two options. And verse 18 gives us that, those two options. And I will close with this this morning. He said, whoever falls on that stone will be broken. Let's just stop there. We talked a little bit about Jesus being the rock and being a stone. And here he talks about somebody falling on that stone. He'll be broken. Well, what does that mean? It simply means that when the Holy Spirit comes, the only sin, the Bible says, is called the Unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, what is that? That is when the gospel is clearly articulated and understood, and as you're weighing it through and you're thinking it through, you have one of two options. The Holy Spirit also brings in conviction. It tells us in John that he came to convict the world of its sin. So when it says you can be fallen and be broken, what he's referring to is allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal to you that you are a sinner and that you're in need of salvation. And if you humble your heart and you fall upon him, he says, I will in no wise cast you out. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. And he saves such that has a contrite spirit. Option number one is falling on the stone. You will be broken, you'll be humbled, and you'll be saved. Good place for an amen. That's the good news. And uh, there's nothing you could add to it. There's nothing you can take away from it. It's an act of your free will. But let me tell you, he will not twist your arm. The Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman. He will simply present the evidence. That's what the rich man wanted when he realized when he was in hell, he had five brothers. And he says, Father Abraham, would you send Lazarus back and warn him about this place? Interesting answer that Abraham gave the rich man. He says, no. Even, even if one would raise him from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. But they have the prophets. What does that mean? means they have this book. And if they don't listen to this book, they're not going to believe even if somebody would raise from the dead. And by the way, there were people there that saw Lazarus raised from the dead and they didn't get saved. You know what they said? We not only have to kill Jesus, we're going to have to kill this guy too. Because he's a living witness. And so they, they were hard-hearted. Option number two, but... Verse 18, on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And so now what we're having here is the non-negotiable gospel. It's either or. You see, all of us are in the same camp. We're all sinners. Another good place for an amen. And we've made a decision. And um, we've decided that this book is true, not based on any emotion, no feeling but by faith. But after a a study like this morning, I think, gang, it's more than reasonable. Mathematically, out of the question, with these sort of odds that Jesus Christ is the Messiah foretold in Daniel chapter nine, and he fulfilled it and allowed himself to be worshiped on Palm Sunday the only time Sometimes he'd do a miracle and he'd say, now don't tell anybody. <laughs> don't tell anybody. Give the glory to God. This day was different. This was the only day that he accepted the praise. And he says, as a matter of fact, if they don't praise me, so will. Because this is the day. So in the Bible, Jesus said, this idea of choice number two um, Luke 13, verse five, he says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will perish. It's tough to talk about hell and the reality of it. The fact of the matter is, we're in that season again. It's Palm Sunday, next week is Resurrection Sunday. And I'm asking those who have never given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, really? With this much evidence, And the odds being stacked against anybody that would think that if that many of these have come true, that what Jesus said isn't going to happen? I don't think so. And I'm certainly not willing to take that chance. So I'm saying, come on, be honest. Does this make common sense? And if you wanted to do it by the numbers, it'll leave you with no doubt, or it should leave you with no doubt that there was only one man that came 2,000 years ago And the good news is, if there's 300 that talked about him coming the first time, and it happened, what did he leave us with? The promise. He says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back for you. I'm preparing a place for you that where I am, you may be also. What do you think the probability factor is of that not happening? Zero to none. It's going to happen. Amen? Amen. Let's say it, and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for another Palm Sunday. Lord, we know that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. You find no delight in people not accepting you and, and being condemned. But you're not only a loving God, but you're a just God. You're a holy God. And a price needs to be paid one way or the other for a person's salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you paid our price. And we're forever grateful And we'll shout it from the mountaintops. But Lord, please put a burden on our hearts for those who don't want to get it or aren't getting it. And equip us with this great tool of prophecy that if people will simply just be honest, that it speaks for itself that you are indeed who you claim to be. So bless your people this day and the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen.